Hey nerds, my name is Will Wheaton, and you are hearing me talk. It is Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. According to the whiteboard, I have been sheltering in place for 122 days, and it's time for chapter four and five of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. A quick production note. Um, most of the time when I record chapters of this, I am using a microphone and going directly into Audacity in my computer. When I'm done recording, I uh, apply a digital filter to reduce background noise, and then I apply a little bit of compression to make my voice easier for you to hear. I recorded chapters four and five on a Zoom uh, portable situation and, uh, it just peaks a little bit. And, uh, the audio quality for chapters four and five is not as good as the audio quality everywhere else. Uh, I leave it to you to decide if it is worth enduring. Uh, and I am putting both chapters four and five into one release so that anyone who's like, I don't like the way this sounds can just pick up in chapter six and you can fill in the gaps yourself in whatever way is pleasing to you. So uh, all of that said, I hope that you enjoy chapters four and five of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. Chapter four, Mr. Cuss interviews the stranger. I have told the circumstances of the stranger's arrival in Ipping with a certain fullness of detail in order that the curious impression he created may be understood by the reader. But excepting two odd incidents, the circumstances of his stay until the extraordinary day of the club festival may be passed over very cursorily. There were a number of skirmishes with Mrs. Hall on matters of domestic discipline, but in every case until late April, when the first signs of penury began, he overrode her by the easy expedient of an extra payment. Hall did not like him, and whenever he dared, he talked of the advisability of getting rid of him. But he showed his dislike chiefly by concealing it ostentatiously and avoiding his visitor as much as possible. Wait till the summer, said Mrs. Hall sagely, when the artists are beginning to come. Then we'll see. He may be a bit overbearing, but Bill's settled. Punctual? Is Bill's settled punctual, whatever you'd like to say. The stranger did not go to church, and indeed made no difference between Sunday and the irreligious days, even in costume. He worked, as Mrs. Hall thought, very fitfully. Some days he would come down early and be continuously busy. On others he would rise late, pace his room, fretting audibly for hours together, smoke, sleep in the armchair by the fire. Communication with the world beyond the village he had none. His temper continued very uncertain. For the most part, his manner was that of a man suffering under almost unendurable provocation. And once or twice, things were snapped, torn, crushed, or broken in spasmodic gusts of violence. He seemed under a chronic irritation of the greatest intensity. His habit of talking to himself in a low voice grew steadily upon him, but though Mrs. Hall listened conscientiously, she could make neither head nor tail of what she heard. He rarely went abroad by daylight, but at twilight he would go out, muffled up invisibly, whether the weather were cold or not, and he chose the loneliest paths and those most overshadowed by trees and banks. His goggling spectacles and ghostly bandaged face under the penthouse of his hat came with a disagreeable suddenness out of the darkness upon one or two home-going laborers, and Teddy Henfrey, tumbling out of the scarlet coat one night at half-past nine, was scared shamefully by the stranger's skull-like head 
he was walking hat in hand, lit by the sudden light of the opened-in door. Such children as saw him at nightfall dreamt of bogies, and it seemed doubtful whether he disliked boys more than they disliked him or the reverse, but there was certainly a vivid enough dislike on either side. It was inevitable that a person of so remarkable an appearance and bearing should form a frequent topic in such a village as Ipping. Opinion was greatly divided about his occupation. Mrs. Hall was sensitive on the point. When questioned, she explained very carefully that he was an experimental investigator, going gingerly over the syllables as one who dreads pitfalls. When asked what an experimental investigator was, she would say with a touch of superiority that most educated people knew such things as that, and would thus explain that he discovered things. Her visitor had had an accident, she said, which temporarily discolored his face and hands, and being of a sensitive disposition, he was averse to any public notice of the fact. Out of her hearing, there was a view largely entertained that he was a criminal, trying to escape from justice by wrapping himself up so as to conceal himself altogether from the eye of the police. This idea sprang from the brain of Mr. Teddy Henfrey. No crime of any magnitude dating from the middle or end of February was known to have occurred. Elaborated in the imagination of Mr. Gould, the probationary assistant in the National School, this theory took the form that the stranger was an anarchist in disguise, preparing explosives, and he resolved to undertake such detective operations as his time permitted. These consisted, for the most part, in looking very hard at the stranger whenever they met, or in asking people who had never seen the stranger leading questions about him. But he detected nothing. Another school of opinion followed Mr. Fahrenheit and either accepted the piebald view or some modification of it. For instance, Silas Durgan, who was heard to assert that if he chooses to show himself affairs, he'd make his fortune in no time, and being a bit of a theologian, compared the stranger with the man, compared the stranger to the man with the one talent. Yet another view explained the entire matter by regarding the stranger as a harmless lunatic. That had the advantage of accounting for everything straight away. Between these main groups, there were waverers and compromisers. Sussex folk have few superstitions, and it was only after the events of early April that the thought of the supernatural was first whispered in the village. Even then, it was only credited among the women folk. But whatever they thought of him, people in Ipping on the whole agreed in disliking him. His irritability, though it might have been incomprehensible, his irritability, though it might have been comprehensible to an urban brain worker, was an amazing thing to these quiet Sussex villagers. The frantic gesticulations they surprised now and then, the headlong pace after nightfall that swept him upon them round quiet corners, the inhuman bludgeoning of all tentative advances of curiosity, the taste for twilight that led to the closing of doors, the pulling down of blinds, the extinction of candles and lamps, who could agree with such goings-on? They drew aside as he passed down the village, and when he had gone by, young humorists would up with coat collars and down with hat brims, and go pacing nervously after him, in imitation of his occult bearing. There was a song popular at that time called The Bogeyman. Miss Satchel sang it in the schoolroom concert, in aid of the church lamps, and thereafter, whenever one of the two villagers were and thereafter, whenever one or two of the villagers were gathered together and the stranger appeared, a bar or so of this tune, more or less sharp or flat, was whistled in the midst of them. Also, belated little children would call bogeyman after him and make off tremulously elated. 
because the general practitioner was devoured by curiosity. The bandages excited his professional interest. The report of the thousand and one bottles aroused his jealous regard. All through April and May, he coveted all through April and May, he coveted an opportunity of talking to the stranger, and at last, toward Whitsuntide, he could stand it no longer, but hit upon the subscription list for a village nurse as an excuse. He was surprised to find that Mr. Hall did not know his guest's name. He gave a name, said Mrs. Hall, an assertion which was quite unfounded, but I didn't rightly hear it. She thought it seemed so silly not to know the man's name. Cuss rapped at the parlor door and entered. There was a fairly audible imprecation from within. Pardon my intrusion, said Cuss, and then the door closed and cut Mrs. Hall off from the rest of the conversation. She could hear the murmur of voices for the next ten minutes. Then a cry of surprise, a stirring of feet, a chair flung aside, a bark of laughter, quick steps to the door, and Cuss appeared, his face white, his eyes staring over his shoulder. He left the door open behind him and, without looking at her, strode across the hall and went down the steps, and she heard his feet hurrying along the road. He carried his hat in his hand. She stood behind the door, looking at the open door of the parlor. Then she heard the stranger laughing quietly, and then his footsteps came across the room. She could not see his face where he stood. The parlor door slammed, and the place was silent again. Cuss went straight up the village to Bunting the vicar. Am I mad? Cuss began abruptly as he entered the shabby little study. Do I look like an insane person? What's happened? said the vicar, putting the ammonite on the loose sheets of his forthcoming sermon. That chap at the inn. Well, give me something to drink, said Cuss, and he sat down. When his nerves had been steadied by a glass of cheap sherry, the only drink the good vicar had available, he told him of the interview he had just had. Went in, he gasped, and began to demand a subscription for that nurse fund. He'd struck, he'd stuck his hands in his pockets as I came in, and he sat down lumpily in his chair, sniffed. I told him I'd heard he took an interest in scientific things. He said yes, sniffed again, kept on sniffing all the time, evidently recently caught an infernal cold. No wonder wrapped up like that. I developed the nurse idea, and all the while kept my eyes open. Bottles, chemicals everywhere. Balance, test tubes in stands, and a smell of evening primrose. Would he subscribe? Said he'd consider it. Asked him point blank, was he researching? Said he was. A long research? Got quite cross. A damnable long research, said he, blowing the cork out, so to speak. Oh, said I. And out came the grievance. The man was just on the boil, and my question boiled him over. He had been given a prescription, most valuable prescription. What for, he wouldn't say. Was it medical? Damn you, what are you fishing after? I apologized. Dignified sniff and cough. He resumed. He'd read it. Five ingredients, put it down, turned his head. Draft of air from the window lifted the paper. Swish, rustle. He was working in a room with an open fireplace, he said. Saw a flicker, and there was the prescription burning and lifting chimneyward. Rushed towards it just as it whisked up the chimney. So, just at that point, to illustrate his story, out came his arm. Well? No hand. Just an empty sleeve. Lord, I thought, 
that's a deformity. It's got a cork arm, I suppose, and has taken it off. Then I thought, there's something odd in that. What the devil keeps that sleeve up and open if there's nothing in it? There was nothing in it, I tell you. Nothing down it, right down to the joint. I could see right down it to the elbow, and there was a glimmer of light shining through a tear of the cloth. Good God, I said. Then he stopped, stared at me with those black goggles of his, and then at his sleeve. Well, that's all. He never said a word, just glared and put his sleeve back in his pocket quickly. I was saying, said he, that there was the prescription burning, wasn't I? Interrogative cough. How the devil, said I, can you move an empty sleeve like that? Empty sleeve? Yes, said I, an empty sleeve. It's an empty sleeve, is it? You saw it was an empty sleeve. He stood up right away. I stood up too. He came towards me in three very slow steps and stood quite close, sniffed venomously. I didn't flinch, though I'm hanged if that bandaged knob of his and those blinkers aren't enough to unnerve anyone coming quietly up to you. You said it was an empty sleeve, he said. Certainly, said I, and staring and saying nothing. A barefaced man, unspectacle, starts scratch. Then very quietly he pulled his sleeve out of his pocket again and raised his arm towards me as though he would show it to me again. He did it very, very slowly. I looked at it, seemed an age. Well, said I, clearing my throat, there's nothing in it. Had to say something. I was beginning to feel frightened. I could see right down it. He extended it straight towards me, slowly, just like that, until the cuff was six inches from my face. Queer thing to see an empty sleeve come at you like that. And then, well, something, exactly like a finger and a, and a thumb it felt, nipped my nose. Bunting began to laugh. There wasn't anything there, said Cuss his voice running up into a shriek at the there. It's all very well for you to laugh, but I tell you, I was so startled, I hit his cuff hard and turned around and cut out of the room. I left him. Cuss stopped. There was no mistaking the sincerity of his panic. He turned around in a helpless way and took a second glass of the echo... He turned around in a helpless way and took a second glass of the excellent vicar's very inferior sherry. When I hit his cuff said Cuss. I'll tell you, it felt exactly like hitting an arm. And there wasn't an arm. There wasn't the ghost of an arm. Mr. Bunting thought it over. He looked suspiciously at Cuss. It's a most remarkable story, he said. He looked very wise and grave indeed. It's really, said Mr. Bunting, with judicial emphasis, a most remarkable story. Chapter 5. The Burglary at the Vicarage. The facts of the burglary at the vicarage come to us chiefly through the medium of the vicar and his wife. It occurred in the small hours of Whit Monday, the day devoted in Ipping to the club festivities. 
Mrs. Bunting, it seems, woke up suddenly in the stillness that comes before the dawn, with the strong impression that the door of their bedroom had opened and closed. She did not arouse her husband at first, but sat up in bed listening. She then distinctly heard the pad, pad, pad of bare feet coming out of the adjoining dressing room and walking along the passage towards the staircase. As soon as she felt assured of this, she aroused the Reverend Mr. Bunting as quietly as possible. He did not strike a light, but putting on his spectacles, her dressing gown, and his bath slippers, he went out on the landing to listen. He heard quite distinctly a fumbling going on at his study desk downstairs, and then a violent sneeze. At that, he returned to his bedroom, armed himself with the most obvious weapon, the poker, and descended the staircase as noiselessly as possible. Mrs. Bunting came out on the landing. The hour was about four, and the ultimate darkness of the night was past. There was a faint shimmer of light in the hall, but the study doorway yawned impenetrably black. Everything was still except the faint creaking of the stairs under Mr. Bunting's tread and the slight movements in the study. Then something snapped. The drawer was opened, and there was a rustle of papers. Then came an imprecation, and a match was struck, and the study was flooded with yellow light. Mr. Bunting was now in the hall, and through the crack of the door, he could see the desk and the open drawer and a candle burning on the desk, but the robber he could not see. He stood there in the hall, undecided what to do, and Mrs. Bunting, her face white and intent, crept slowly downstairs after him. One thing kept Mr. Bunting's courage, the persuasion that this burglar was a resident in the village. They heard the chink of money and realized that the robber had found the housekeeping reserve of gold, two pounds ten in half-sovereigns altogether. At that sound, Mr. Bunting was nerved to abrupt action. Gripping the poker firmly, he rushed into the room, closely followed by Mrs. Bunting. Surrender, cried Mr. Bunting fiercely, and then stooped, amazed. Apparently, the room was perfectly empty. Yet their conviction that they had, that very moment, heard somebody moving in the room had amounted to a certainty. For half a minute, perhaps, they stood gaping. Then Mrs. Bunting went across the room and looked behind the screen, while Mr. Bunting, by a kindred impulse, peered under the desk. Then Mrs. Bunting turned back the window curtains, and Mr. Bunting looked up the chimney and probed it with the poker. Then Mrs. Bunting scrutinized the waste paper basket, and Mr. Bunting opened the lid of the coal scuttle. Then they came to a stop and stood with eyes interrogating each other. I could have sworn, said Mr. Bunting. The candle, said Mr. Bunting. Who lit the candle? The drawer, said Mrs. Bunting. And the money's gone. She went hastily to the doorway. Of all the strange occurrences, there was a violent sneeze in the passage. They rushed out, and as they did so, the kitchen door slammed. Bring the candle, said Mr. Bunting, and led the way. They both heard a sound of bolts being hastily shot back. As he opened the kitchen door, he saw through the scullery that the back door was just opening, and the faint light of early dawn displayed the dark masses of the garden beyond. He is certain that nothing went out the door. It opened, stood open for a moment, and then closed with a slam. As it did so, the candle Mrs. Bunting was carrying from the study flickered and flared. It was a minute or more before they entered the kitchen. The place was empty. They refastened the back door, examined the kitchen, pantry, and scullery thoroughly, and at last went down into the cellar. There was not a soul to be found in the house, search as they would. Daylight found the vicar and his wife, a quaintly costumed little couple, still marveling about on their ground floor, 
by the unnecessary light of a guttering candle.